Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fricoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by the inimitable Anna Sale. Anna is the host of Death, Sex, and Money, a show about the things that matter most in life, but that we talk about the least. Class, race, love, grief, masculinity, student debt, parenthood, and of course, death, sex, and money. Since the show began in May of 2014, Sale has built this career out of going there, to those vulnerable places in conversation where the truth resides. Her seven years of hosting Death, Sex, and Money has culminated in a new book called Let's Talk About Hard Things. Featuring passages from the show and beyond, it's part memoir, part self-help. It includes stories from strangers and stars alike conversations around family, identity, and more. The point of these conversations, as Sale writes, is to see more clearly, not to reduce the complexity of our relationships to a formula. Sale writes, how do we start a conversation that we know will be difficult? Where do we start? That's a question I ask myself every week on this podcast. 
difficult or not? Where do we start? The answer, at least for this talk with Anna, comes from author Anne Lamott. We start with where we are and go from there. So that's what we did. I hope you enjoy. Anna Sale, thank you for being here. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm doing okay. How about you? Hmm. <laughs> Look, I'm excited to talk to you. I didn't totally buy your answer. I wanted I wanted I wanted more. How am I? I am I'm like kind of at the top almost getting to the top of a diving board. I don't know if it's because I'm 40. I don't know if it's because I'm a week away from my second vaccine shot. I don't know if it's because this book is coming out into the world, but I have this sense that I'm like about to maybe have some some big shifts in just how my life looks and works, but I have no idea what the changes are going to be. <laughs> so I'm just kind of like, all right. So so you're at the top of the diving board. Getting there almost. I'm like climbing. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're climbing. And do you have any sense of maybe what's in the water to keep this analogy alive? We hope it's enough water to not injure poor Anna. <laughs> <laughs> we hope Anna is safe in whatever is going to be leapt into next. I mean, I guess maybe nothing is going to be different. And then it's going to feel really like maybe I'm not leaping. Maybe the diving board is a lot lower than what I think it is as far as like... I'm like, I really am feeling this, like, what What am I walking into? And I do wonder if it's what we're all sort of thinking about is, like, are we returning to something? Are we coming into some new phase of how American society works and looks? But I also, maybe it's also pretty particular to my current life arrangement. Well, you do have 40 yeah. <laughs> second vaccine book coming out all sort of at once. I think that is a singular thing. I'm not pregnant. I could also be pregnant. I'm not. Thank you. Aside from that, <laughs> your new book is called Let's Talk About Hard Things, which I often worry is um, people's alternate title of Talk Easy with San Fragoso. <laughs> what is your entry point into this book? I sort of, this is probably a question that you get as an interviewer. Like uh, when people would ask me about my work, they would say, how do you do that? How do you get people to open up and to tell you such private things? And I would find myself sort of improvising my answer, like, uh, you know, ask open questions, you know, follow up, act, you know, the follow ups that are concrete, which are good tips. But I, I, it, I sort of was like, what is it that I'm doing? And why am I doing it? And also, like, what am I doing in a radio studio? that I'm not doing, that I wish I could do better in my personal life? What lessons that I have learned from doing this work can I apply to my most important relationships? And, and what can I help other people do in their most important relationships? So, so that idea of like, let's do this. Let's talk about hard things. Like, don't just listen to a podcast, like, it's important that you listen to a podcast and hear, you know, these kinds of very private conversations, but also... Especially if it's 
best sex and money. Man, especially, so. especially, especially if it's one of ours. But I, I do actually really believe that something important happens when you move out of sort of the pitter patter of everyday conversation and say, like, let's let's get into this. I want to I want to know. I want to know what's happening with you, and I want to tell you what's going on with me in a, in a little bit of a deeper way. And you felt like you weren't having enough of those dialogues in your day-to-day life? No, I mean, I've always had them. That's always, it's part of my personality to sort of like really lock in on one-on-one conversation. But I think, you know, I'm not my best self in conversation in real life compared to, I feel like the best version of Anna Sale, the best human is the one who's hosting the podcast. Anna Sale is not the best spouse. Anna Sale is not the best sister, the best friend. And I realized I was nodding vigorously like, no, for sure. You're much better. I don't want to make it seem like Anna's a huge asshole when we turn these mics off. Well, I can be. I mean, I can really be. And I guess like going back to the whole origin story of Death, Sex and Money, like the reason I started the show is because I was sort of, when I hit 30, my first marriage was falling apart. And I hadn't really seen it coming and really had 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 a lot of faith that I could talk my way through and commit myself to solving problems in relationships. And when my life all of a sudden, you know, talk about being on the edge of a really tall diving board, like what I thought was the path in front of me just was gone. And I felt like I was in outer space in a really like deep, scary way for me. It's the first time I I had felt that feeling of like, what is my life? The thing that helped me, like I was casting about for like, somebody help me fix this, you know? But the thing that actually helped me was talking to people in my life and then doing journalism about like, how have you, when when moments like that have happened in your life, tell me about it. And it just helped normalize that like, oh, this is part this is what life is. Life is having the bottom fall out and you have to rebuild it back. And how you rebuild it back and with whom is what our lives are made of. Can we go to that moment where you felt like your world was bottoming out? I got married when I was 26, almost 27, to a guy I met when I was uh, going into my senior year of college. Uh, we were both from West Virginia, and we both like like loved the same art and movies and like music. We just like really all. It's like when you find your person. So I found my person. He was a lawyer with aspirations to be a filmmaker. Yeah, on our first date, that's what he told me. I'm a lawyer now, but I really want to make movies. And I was like, "Ugh, tell me that." It's like that is like the, <laughs> the perfect line for me at this point in my life. You are the dream. But why was that perfect? Well, to me, it was like, oh, you like, you have built your life to be of service and um, committed to something outside of yourself. You have values that align with mine. He was doing civil rights law. And I'm creative and I'm interested in making stuff. And like, but in this way that wasn't, it, it, it still, he wasn't too risky, like, which I see going like looking back, like he had a job. Like he wasn't like, I'm 25 years old and I'm going to make movies, you know, like to me, I'm not sure that would have been as attractive to me um, as somebody like, can I make a life with you? You know? (laughs) And then we fell in love and we were together for years. And then we got married when I was 26 
Then we were married for a few years. And then he said to me, you know, you know how I said I want to make movies. Like, I actually really want to make movies and I want to try this. And I said, okay, like that's, let's, what do you mean? Like, what does that look like? And he said, I want to go to NYU film school. And at the time we were living in West Virginia and it was like, as if he was saying, I'd like to go to Mars, you know? And I knew to say, I support you, sweetie. I know this is important to you. I know this is like deeply who you are. I also inside was thinking like, what about me? You know, like, where do I fit in this dream? And he got into film school. He started making movies. We moved to New York together in 2009. I was terrified I wasn't going to be able to find work. I was told by people not to come because this is at a point when like this kind of pre-podcast and like layoffs in public radio, layoffs in newsrooms, like journalism in New York City was not, not a growth proposition. And it was really scary. And I got a job. I got work. And it was working sort of as far as the numbers go. We had this little studio in Williamsburg. And that for a time sort of papered over this the still like fundamental thing, which was he was going to film school to transform his life. And I didn't want to transform our life. So we talked about that in sort of like very different small ways, you know, where you sort of like feel those tensions and we would have arguments about, you know, money or what he was going to do over the summer or, you know, and, and just budgets for his short films, like just these discrete fights that we felt like we were kind of like, we would find a way to like end the conflict in the moment, but still this like fundamental misalignment was there. But I, I tried to work my way around it. We, we went to couples counseling. We read the books. We were like, how do we do this? And finally, uh, we were coming home. This is like one of the saddest scenes in the book, I, I think, because it's just it's like so pitiful. Um, we were home in West Virginia where both of our families were living. We were on this like teeny tiny plane flying back to New York. And we'd sort of been at each other um, for a lot of the time we'd been home. And finally, he just erupted when we're in this little plane. And he's like, Anna, I don't want what you want. I want to make movies. I want to travel around the world. Like, I want to do this. And you want to have a house and have kids and have, that's what you want. I don't want that. And the reason it was so pathetic (laughs) is what I picture is I had this like Subway sandwich from an airport Subway in a clear plastic bag on my lap. And I just remember looking down at it and just my first instinct was to like shush him because it was like a small plane and I didn't want people to hear us arguing. And I also was like, oh, he said it. He said the thing. Um, Then it took a while to sort of like, that wasn't wasn't the conversation where we decided we weren't going to stay together, but it was like the beginning of the end where we were like, okay, what what does it mean that we want different things? He said the thing that you can't come back from. Or he said the thing we both knew to be true. Which is something you get at in the book over and over again. This need to kind of just say the thing and put it on the table. What you're asking people to do 
is a terrifying proposition. Yeah, and I'm not asking them to do it in every conversation. I, I, I definitely, I'm asking people to like step forward and to try to do that more. That like when we don't name the thing, it's still there. Whether it's grief or loss or not having enough money or having more money than someone you care about in your life and you're trying to talk around it or or a feeling of distance with a, a family member that you once were quite close to, something important happens when you just name it, you know? It's it's not the conclusion. It's a, it doesn't mean that, like, oh, this this is a this is a hard thing in our relationship, so thus our relationship is doomed. But you can't you can't figure out what what is the next stage of your relationship together if, if you haven't named the thing. When you see yourself with that Subway sandwich, why does it pain you so much now? Because it was sad, you know? Like anyone who's been in love with someone, and especially a young love when you're like coming of age together and like learning how to be adults together and entering the world together, like that is really special, tender love. When it changes it's a sad ending. And I think I feel, yeah, I just sort of want to like hold both of those people because, because they, they were doing the best they could and they were like picking at each other because they were mad about the facts of what was happening. When in fact, it's okay that that's what happened, you know? As the love changed and you found yourself in New York in 2010, divorce, I was thinking about how you were renegotiating your ideas around money and work because you were raised to be a responsible risk averse adult and responsible in like quotes like that in that quotes. was the way to be responsible Sorry. yeah yeah thank you for adding the yeah. quotes don't want to give yourself too much <laughs> but you were someone focused on getting and keeping a stable job not spending money on anything flashy and you wrote my clear prescription for being a responsible adult did not jive with the idea of quitting my job and moving to New York City in a recession so my first husband could become a film student. Nevertheless, you did do this. It didn't work out. And you had to find your footing. How did you navigate those next steps in thinking about career and money at age 30? It was a whole, like process. <laughs> it was the other thing that I think was important for me to know about our relationship is like, because he was a lawyer and he made more money than I did as a public radio reporter. I, I kind of came out of college and sort of moved immediately into this idea that like, I was going to be okay. And then when you go through a divorce and you realize, oh, when you divorce, it's the end of a relationship, which has its own set of things you have to go through. And it's also this like very clinical material disentangling, like making two bank accounts where there once was one and like figuring out what you owe each other as you separate. So it was sort of like, okay, well, I have these numbers. This is my money life now. It's me, <laughs> you know? And I mean, I think an important thing to note was like, I didn't have student loans. I had a job when I got divorced and I had a studio apartment that I could afford. 
So I wasn't ever in financial crisis in the way that I needed help from somebody else. But it it did open a lot of questions that I thought had been sort of resolved, which was like, do you want to be in New York? Uh, like, what kind of journalist do you want to do? What do you want to make? Like, do you want to start making choices because it's important to make more money at this stage in your life? Like, basic questions that I kind of thought that I had sort of moved through in that early post-college phase. And it just got all torn open again. It just took trying out different ideas. Like I can remember when I met Arthur, who's now my husband, who was a grad student at the time in Wyoming, which made no sense as a person to date when you're a reporter living in New York City. Like I can remember an early walk of ours and he was like, so what do you, what do you hope for your career? And I was like, maybe. <laughs> so like embarrassing. <laughs> I was like, I don't, he's like, do you want to do like TV? I was like, maybe I'll do cable television. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I can do, I'm okay on camera. You know, I just was like, what? I, maybe. And then at another point I thought I was going to like start a show all about rural America and like do, because I'm from West Virginia. Like I had all of these ideas that I sort of like tried on. You're almost trying out another voice while playing that part. Really? <laughs> you did, you did a kind of maybe. I'll, and I was like, I don't. Doesn't sound like Anna. <laughs> you can hear it in my radio pieces at the time. Like when I was covering, like in the thick of being a political reporter, I sounded different. I sounded much more sort of like I talked a lot faster. I was like trying to show that I could keep up with the big boys, you know, had sharp elbows. You can hear it all. Like I was just trying to figure out who I was. Like looking back, I'm like, oh, all the things that I was trying on, like I took little pieces from each of these things. But in the moment, in the, those couple of years where I was, it was really unsettling. I want to know what I'm supposed to be doing. And I don't know. And when did you discover that? It wasn't a moment. It was sort of like, I mean, I remember... I got the opportunity, like when I came up with the idea for Death, Sex, and Money, it was because there was this invitation across WNYC. There was to suggest new show ideas. It was going to be a contest. And when I heard about the contest, I was like, I don't have a show idea, but I am going to enter something. <laughs> you know <what> I need? <laughs> this is like a kid who's like, I'm entering the raffle. I don't even care what the prize is. Just put me in. Well, I think also, speaking of my risk aversion, I love making stuff, but I get in my own way because if I can't figure out how I can do it within a container that is that I understand, this was like, oh, I don't have to quit my job to try something new. This works for me. And then I, the homework was basically like, from all of this surveying of what what you've done in, in your journalism career up to this point, like what feeds you personally, like what art you like to bring in and just who are you? What is the dream job? That's what the show pitch became. It was like, how do I make a show that is broad enough that like, this is all stuff that we deal with and deal with in really particular and specific and individual ways. But all of us can feel on our own going through hard stuff around death, sex, and money. And what if we make a show where we just like try to say, we're going to talk in a little more detail than you do when you're doing other interviews. I'm going to ask about if you share money with your wife, because I'm curious. I don't care if the answer is yes or no, but I want to know what you were thinking about. Because I'm like, should I share money with my next partner? Like that was... <laughs> 
that's where I was at the time. Like, I'm just collecting information. But yeah, it took a long time. It took a long time to sort of find it. But that's one of the things that I, looking back and what I tell people about making creative work is like, you know, when you're doing the thing that feeds you and just keep scratching at that, you know, that feeling. And you know the feeling when you're doing something you're good at that you think you should be doing. Try to separate that out into a different bucket. Because as somebody who like, I'm like an A student type of person, show me, give me an assignment, I'm going to try to do it really well. It can be a big distraction from doing the thing that you actually want to do. You described in the early years of working in journalism as a supremely passive-aggressive way to move (laughs) through the world. At what point in Death, Sex, and Money did that shift? When, when did it move away from Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered... How can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first-place winner in the industry category at last year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business podcast. Chase, 
Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. Copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase and Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. Passive aggression. The recorded interview is not, you can't be passive aggressive. You have to be in it. And you have to actually be in relationship with the person you're talking to and confront them in the moment in a way that like, is a real skill that I had to learn. What what felt passive aggressive to me initially with journalism was I was like, oh, I'm supposed to sit at this desk and call people and write emails that are like, hey, I, my deadline is 3 p.m. Is there any way you could get this to me? And da 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 da. Or like, hey, I'm really wondering, like, what what's going on here? Like the charm of the phone call in a newsroom to get someone to want to tell you stuff. You know, you have to endear yourself to people. And then your job is to, like, collect all that information and then make the piece where you're like, hey, people, here's really what's going on. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I think initially it was like, that's my job. As you do journalism more, you realize, oh, that source that I just talked to and made them feel like I was their buddy and then they read my piece like, you realize you've got to have sort of more complicated relationships where it's not so passive-aggressive and more direct. But initially, I was like, hmm, this is kind of strange. I'm really sweet and nice to get people to tell me stuff and also act dumb. Tell me, I don't get this. Tell me this. You know, and then you write the piece where you're like, you know. How much of that did you bring into Death, Sex, and Money? I think this thing that I feel really glad that I was forced to sort of learn how to do was how to make that immediate here's what I'm trying to do and here's why we're doing this. Does that make sense to you? Okay, cool. Like you you just immediately build that relationship. And I learned how to do that doing campaign reporting where you're like meeting people in shopping center parking lots, you know, when they have two kids and a grocery cart. And all I wanted was four minutes of tape about whether they thought the country was going in the right direction or not. Like, why should they talk to me? I had to convince them that talking to me was was in their interest. I'm curious, now that we're looking back on seven years of the show, is there an episode or a couple of episodes where you think, I think I'm on the right path here? After all that you went through to get to that program, do you remember that? There are those interviews where you're like, oh, I really tied it all together there. Like I got, we went on a journey together that was really satisfying and special and won't happen again in the same way. Like there are those interviews, but more the thing that I thought of when you asked that, it's like, am I doing what I'm supposed to be? It was just like, I often with my work just think like, this is the coolest thing I get to do be curious, compare notes with people, say what I don't understand, have them explain from their own experience, you know, mirror back to someone when you can, when they're expressing something that they haven't, they're not sure that anybody else has felt. And you can, you know, sort of like, you can feel them pulling themselves out of that sense of isolation. Like, that's just really fun. I do think like every interview I do, 
sometimes they're really short relationships, but it's a relationship. Something really important is happening. How do you negotiate or monitor your own emotional bandwidth between giving yourself to the strangers you're interviewing and the people in your life? I guess, how do you hold them both without being depleted? I feel fed by doing the show, by doing the interviews. I had a a really wise mentor early on when I was like still in college and didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I thought I might go into the ministry. I thought I might, I had no idea. I was like all over the place. And I had a, a older guy just said like, just pay attention to what takes energy from you and what gives you energy and follow what gives you energy, which is really good advice. So making the show doesn't deplete me, even when I'm having conversations about hard stuff. I mean, there's some some conversations where I feel, you know, heavy afterwards, but I feel deeply fed by those interactions. Of course, I ask you about emotional bandwidth purely as a question for myself. Like having two little kids, it's sort of like you build a muscle of just like, it doesn't matter where I am. They need a snack, you know? (laughs) So you just like... They don't care what amazing conversation I had and that I'm emotionally tired. They're hungry. <laughs> so, but I, I kind of like that contrast. Now I am a snack maker. So, so you're telling me I need kids. It's a reason to have kids, really. That's, That's it. It's a reason to have kids. Okay. <laughs> if you want to keep doing the podcast, you're going to have to have children. That's just how it works. You married your husband in 2015. I want to go to the ceremony. You got married on August 15th. The Reverend Morris J. Lent Jr. led a ceremony under the New York Times writes, under warm and sunny skies. He urged the couple to hear and to feel the Wyoming wind. He then said, Sometimes gentle breezes and other times powerful gusts. This wind can become the voice of your marriage union. Most of this wind will lead you and all of us to the knowing in our bones and in our souls that we are not alone in this world. We were in this like courtyard at a museum in Cody, Wyoming in August and under these aspen trees. What's so cool about them, they're the, they're the ones you see in the West that have this sort of white bark and then they have these kind of heart-shaped leaves. And when the wind hits them, you hear this like... And... That was his sermon. That was the message. And there would just be these breezes. You know, like, what a powerful message when you're surrounded by people who love you, who you love, who've been through stuff, watched you go through stuff. It's not just, like, in your head and in your heart. It's, like, also this, like, bigger thing of, like, you're part of bigger energy. What what I think of when I think of that moment, (laughs) this is a really weird thing, but that museum and Cody kind of basically shares a parking lot with the hospital. Less than a year later, I got pregnant very soon after we got married on August 15th. And the next June, we were back in Cody, having decided to have our baby there and take my maternity leave there. And we had her in this hospital that's across the parking lot from where we got married. (laughs) I'm in the hospital room, like with this baby. And I remember Arthur left the room at one point to go kind of like make sure the car seat was in the car the right way, um, which is like a really big 
dad task, <laughs> you know, make sure the kid will get safely home. And he came, he took a while and he came back in and he talked about like going out to the car and being under aspen trees and having the wind blow and just the immensity of this child, our child is here and life and this place and that wind. It's really a cool moment. You got emotional at the end of that. It's just, it was like, it's wondrous. Those those two memories, really precious. And the journey to get there. Oh, it was like total. <laughs> I mean, it was like so up and down. My Arthur and I were talking yesterday. <laughs> this is so sad. I didn't write about this in the book. I'd sort of like forgotten because it's just that sad. As I was like figuring out what is my work? Who am I? What do I want? I was like in relationship with this man and he was figuring out who am I? What's my career going to be? I'm finishing grad school. He studies large mammals. I'm dating this woman who's a New York City reporter. Like, how does this work? We like each other. We love each other. We want to talk to each other tonight. But like, what is the plan? And two years into our relationship, there was like a night where we were, it, it was really intense remembering this. We were like babysitting for a friend of mine. And so we were at her house with this baby. So we were like playing house together. We put the kid down, the kid is sleeping. And then the conversation about who, who are we? What are we doing? Like all of that came up. He told me, if you need these answers, I don't have them. And I, I'm running out of energy, speaking of energy. So we basically like decided we needed to, to split up. We needed to take time while we're babysitting. <laughs> and it was out in the Rockaways, so it was like far from our my apartment. And we're driving home. I'm driving. And I get a flat tire. <laughs> and it's like raining. And it was so lame because it's like, it was really helpful to have like a big, strong man to help me with a flat tire. But it was, we'd just broken up. And I was like, I, I need you. <laughs> and he's like, could this be sadder? <laughs> did he fix the tire? He put on the spare. And what did you think about while he was doing that? Oh, I just thought this is really sad. I mean, it was touch and go for us for a bit because it was like, we didn't make sense on paper. My first husband and I ended up not making sense. Like, oh, if your column says this about what you want and your column says that, like, that doesn't make sense. Somehow what I came to, like, realize about him was like, oh, we don't know what we want. We don't know where we're going. There's a lot that's up in the air for both of us. But you are someone who I want to figure this out with. Part of it was, like, kind of a curse, but also the blessing of, of why Arthur and I made it was because... We were at our best when we were, like, talking about the really hard stuff. Because I could do it with him. We battle sometimes, but he's really good at it. I can't, like, hide. I can't pretend I'm being honorable when I'm really saying something that, you know, you know, like, I can't, like, when I'm being defensive, but I'm saying it in words that make me sound righteous. He's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you know? So that's talking about hard things. I've really learned that in my marriage and with Arthur, that you can say the really hard stuff and then look at it together. 
Alan Simpson, a senator from Wyoming from uh, 1979 to 1997, played a pivotal role in your marriage. Here's what he had to say on love. The secret is you both try to control each other and you both fail. And it's critical that you both fail as you try to, and you do it in the most skilled and manipulative ways. Oh my God, to this moment, I'm trying to control Arthur. <laughs> and he, me, you know. And when we have those moments of being like, oh, you're doing that thing that's not what I would do. Oh man, when you have a partner who you can like kind of battle with, but who you don't have to take care of while you're battling with them. When I picture Arthur, I just picture him. He's just like solidly on his two feet. You just want to go out, you know, you just want to do life beside them. I know you've told a story a whole bunch and on the show, but for reference, I think it's important, at least in this talk, to briefly explain how you and Arthur managed to make this work. After the really sad flat tire night, you know, we were sort of in that, like, are we together? Are we not together? I really miss you. I don't, I miss you too. You know, in that, in that phase of deciding whether we were going to be together or be apart. And then finally, we just really, no, let's, maybe we just, we are two people who love each other and have loved each other who need to go about our separate ways. And that's where we sort of landed. And we were really broken up. It was, it was not, that many weeks, but it feels like huge because I had sort of made the shift in my head of like, I'm now not in a relationship. And then Arthur, he did reach out to me and he said, I think we've made a really big mistake and here's the reasons why. And he had like written it all out. He's, you know, talked about what we shared and the ways in which we complimented one another and, and what we understood about one another. I just had that reaction of like, I know it's really sad, and I think you're scared that this is over, but we've gone over this and we just, we need to be broken up. Like we've decided this, which was pretty heartbreaking to him. And I thought I was the one who was like holding firm and like, we've done this. Let's let, let a decision be a decision. And then unbeknownst to me, you know, he was just like, how do I shift this dynamic. He didn't give up. He decided to write Alan Simpson, this former senator from Wyoming, a letter about our relationship and ask him to call me. And the reasons for this don't really make sense, but I will explain. <laughs> it's like I was covering politics at the time. I had like, you know, he, Alan Simpson, when he was in Washington and continues to be to this day, like he's like a character, like you just like want to hear him talk. So we, you know, we talked about Alan Simpson and listened to Alan Simpson interviews together because Arthur was living in Wyoming at the time, but I didn't know him. He's like, if this weird thing happens, it'll remind Anna about something important about us, which is like, I get that she would like appreciate this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, and the thing that Arthur didn't know that I think was another just kind of amazing thing is Alan Simpson has an incredible wife named Anne. And I didn't know either of them. But when Alan Simpson did call me on my cell phone to say, I have this letter here and like read me portions of this letter, like I could hear this woman in the background. And Al, they have that kind of marriage where he's like, well, Anne said da 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 And I hear her in the background. And I just said to him while I'm walking the streets of Manhattan with the phone against my ear, I said like, well, what does Anne think I should do? 
And then this woman gets on the phone and they both are saying like, we don't know you all. We don't know what's going on. But Anne said to me, just don't let your pride get in the way. And that to me is something that um, I have some pride. I like move through the world with a lot of pride. (laughs) So it did shift things. It was like, I hung up the phone and I was like, that was amazing and weird. I want to call Arthur and tell him all about it because he doesn't, you know. And I ended up telling him that this thing had happened and we laughed about it. And it, it just kind of like reopened me up. I don't know, this is this person's like fun to be with. And maybe instead of being like so afraid that I don't have a map of how our relationship is going to work and that we're not going to like end up at some impasse like I did with my first marriage, I think that was the fear. The fear was like making a mistake again that I should have seen coming. Like that was my fear. Instead, it was like, if this person is bringing this kind of like weird stuff into my life, what else cool might happen? (laughs) You two get married in 2015. You move out to California in 2016. In 2017, I came to your studio and we uh, taped an episode of this show. I'm sure you remember it very, very well. I do. (laughs) And in the middle of our first conversation... There's this clip I want to um, listen to again, if you're open to it. Yeah. Like now I'm kind of, um, I feel like I'm not in transition for the first time in a long, long time right now. Like I can see, like, I will likely be living in the same place, caring about the same things, hopefully doing the same kind of work, you know, for at least, you know, a few years to come, which has not been a feeling I've had in a long time. So because my, I was covering news, I was working on different radio shows, I didn't know if I was going to stay in New York. I didn't know if I was going to marry Arthur. And then it was like, how are we going to make it work in New York City when you study large mammals, you know, all these things. And then I like, what a great sentence, by the way. (laughs) How are we going to make it work in New York City if you study large mammals? It's like a thing. It was a big question. And then it was like, oh my gosh, not only did we just get married now, we're pregnant, we're having a kid. So I feel like we've, like, there's just been a lot. It's to, to be in a space now in my life and and with my family where we're like, now we just get to like learn how to be a family in one place um, is Mm. is pretty, like we've talked about (laughs) Arthur, soon after we moved here, he was like, we'd like just gotten a couch or something and Arthur was like, and now we just get old. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) it's like after so many questions, who am I, what am I, what am I doing, how? Like now it's like, okay, now we just, you know, maybe now is when we get super depressed because like we don't have this change like propelling us in survival mode. You can ask me if I'm depressed. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. What did you make hearing yourself like that? I mean... A lot of things. So I was like, wow, she doesn't know that she's going to have another baby. She doesn't know that there's going to be a global pandemic. And I am still living in the same place, getting old. So <laughs> getting older. <laughs> um, and I, the thing that I, I think that, that I was right about and that I have sort of felt, and maybe that's part of what's about being 40 and, and this like diving board thing is it's like, it's this transition from the young person hustle of like, what, how am I, what is this, what life am I going to build and how am I going to do it? And 
where do I find the pieces and how do they work together? For me, it was like a real project to to go, go, to go through all that. And now I, I know how to hustle and do the like more, 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 more thing. But I don't want that right now in my life. And so now it's like, how do you like organize your life so you're like deepening and building and not sort of like casting about for for new inputs? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it feels very like midlifey, like, but that's that's a feeling that I've had is like, if you're not just like uh looking for like some external thing that's gonna shift something to make something feel more right. You have to find your your jollies in other ways. <laughs> Are you laughing at the word jollies? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like when you can't, you know, I've got two little kids, so I don't I don't go out late at night or I didn't pre-pandemic. Like, and that used to be a really fun way of like being in the world. And that's not a part of my life right now. And what are the new ways that you feel fed. Is this too abstract? Are you following me? I'm following you. Okay. I like to think of this show as a kind of ongoing time capsule. As we leave, let's say you do finally make it up to the diving board. When you jump, what do you want to be in the water? (laughs) One thing that I thought of was like, Oh, like a really nice raft to just lay and look up at the sky (laughs) and feel the breeze. (laughs) Here's how I think of it. When I was in that really like big period of upheaval that lasted for several years in my early 30s, I was so scared. That was the predominant feeling was like fear. And I more than like where I'm going to like what's in the water. It's more like, did I learn enough to like enjoy the the leap? If your kids happen to listen to this down the line, what would you want them to know about you at 40? I want them to know that like I thought a lot about how to be a part of trying to make the world better for them because they deserve it. And also trying to... Like, I do think learning how to be a good listener is a really important skill as a parent. They're at the age now where it's like every day I learn something new about who they are. So I hope they listen to this and they think, oh, there's our mom who like, she's annoying and screwed up in all these ways, but like she did really try to know us. (laughs) That's a little bit how I feel about myself in relation to you right now. I am trying to know you. And I think it was in the fall, I wrote a letter to you. In that letter, I described uh, the experience of going to interview Anna at her studio in Emeryville. And I have this distinct memory to bring it really full circle of eating a Subway sandwich. <laughs> oh, poor you. <laughs> But I kept going because early on you were uh, in my corner about the show. And without Death, Sex, and Money, there would be no Talk Easy. And I am eternally grateful for you and all that you've done. 
Thank you, Sam. That means a lot. That was a long story. Do you want to add anything? (laughs) (laughs) I hope both of us know sometimes it's worth the extra five to eight dollars to get a quality sandwich now. (laughs) I hope that's a lesson learned. (laughs) Anna Sale, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's our show. Special thanks this week to the team at Simon and Schuster. I'd also like to thank Katie Bishop and, of course, Anna Sale. Anna's new book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, is available wherever you do your reading. For more, including a link to our first conversation in 2017, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd recommend our talks with Elizabeth Gilbert, Holland Taylor, Anne Lamott, Representative Ilhan Omar, Miranda July, and Janelle Monet. You can find all of those and more on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producers are Caitlin Dryden and Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editor for today's episode is Clarice Guevara. Our assistant editor is Joshua Siegel. Our interns are Jilly Harold, Patrice Lee, Grace Perkins, and Callie Syringas. Our illustrations are by Krishna Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Orion Wong, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back next week with Jake Tapper. It was supposed to be this Sunday. We had some technical mishaps over the week, but it's a very special episode, so I'm excited for you to hear it. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. 
Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.